All right, so we're continuing on in our series on the book of Galatians. Uh, it is our subtitle that it is No Other Gospel. Today, uh, as you know, as we enter into uh, Halloween week, I have an appropriate title. Uh, and the title today is The Spooky Spell. Ooh. All right, I'm trying different things today when I'm preaching, so you're going to have to hang with me. Um, but nonetheless, it's the spooky spell, right? Uh, so it is Halloween, right? And so as Christians, and this is what I've, what I've experienced as, as, as one of the elders and pastors of the Grove. As we started this thing, one of the first things we did uh, was we did a block party, right? And so there are, there are two ways that we Christians think about Halloween. We either avoid it altogether or we engage it. Uh, and usually it depends on our history, on what we're going to do. Like, so for me, um, I was raised in a household where we just, went all in on Halloween, and so um, I was the guy that was egging your house, that was vandalizing your home. Um, so for anybody in the West Chase area back in the early 90s, I apologize, but that was me. And so uh, if you were my friend, it was likely that one of these years you were going to wake up with a um, yard full of pumpkins, because I wasn't a Christian yet, okay, people? So don't judge me. But uh, so we engaged it that way. Now we engaged it. We engage it in a different way, right? We have block parties as a church. We just kind of heard a little bit about that. Hopefully, you've experienced that. I remember when we first started. There was one of us uh, that's an elder now who had never done Halloween before in his life, and so the first time he ever engaged Halloween was when we had a block party. He was like oh my gosh, this is actually really fun. Like I was told as a kid that we had to turn the lights off and basically put um, a, a, a sign on the door that said, we're Christians, we're at church, basically a go away. So uh, that has basically been the, the way that we do it. We either avoid it or we engage it. And so my prayer for us is that we would engage it with a healthy way but that for those of us, whether we're engaging or avoiding, there is a little bit of difficulty on a day like Halloween. Like, I try to, uh, to dress up like Martin Luther as often as I can because it's also uh, Reformation Day, if you didn't know that. If you don't know what Reformation Day is, Google it, it'll be fine. Uh, but we do have difficulty in discerning what's real and what's not real on a day like Halloween. And I think we always have this difficulty of discernment, but Halloween just kind of brings it to the top. Like, what's real? Are ghosts and zombies real? Probably not. But is voodoo and witchcraft real? Probably so. And so the voodoo festival, I've driven into Houston a lot lately, and there's a, um, a voodoo festival in New Orleans this week. Like, that's probably something as Christians we don't want to engage, because there's a whole lot of stuff. At least that would be my recommendation. If you can go do that for the glory of God, go do it, but that'd be my recommendation for me. I ain't doing that. And so, therefore, we got to be careful about what's kind of real, what's not real. Voodoo and witchcraft, real. Ghosts, zombies, not real. No matter how you see the resurrection of Jesus, he was not a zombie. Okay. He was a living person, not uh, coming back from the dead in that way. So whether we engage or avoid, we need not fear the spell that's out there. We need not fear the spell which will be cast on us by the night's pagan roots or the inherent license towards sin. Both of those are real, but we as Christians need not fear that. Instead, there is a far greater dangerous spell that lurks not in the candy dish of your neighbor or in the haunted house down the street. The spell that's far more dangerous lurks around in this room right now. What is that spell? This spooky spell is so dangerous that it provoked a strong rebuke from Pastor Paul. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
Another totally legitimate uh, translation. You idiots. Who has cast a spell on you? And I'm not kidding you when I tell you that's legitimate. I'm not trying to be funny when I say Paul, I think, is heartbroken right here. I think some of us hear that word idiot or foolishness and we go, well, that's really inappropriate, Paul. Uh, I wish you'd have done that a little bit kinder and therefore I'm not going to hear you unless you do it in kindness. And he's doing it in the most kindness that he can muster up when he's planted a church and then seen them abandon the gospel so quickly. And now he is coming back and going, oh foolish ones, please. Oh foolish ones. Who has, who's cut in on you? Who's cast a spell on you? Who's bewitched you? What happened? I think God preserves this type of language for us for several different reasons. One, so we can understand that there's a time and a place for loving rebuke in our lives. I think we've forgotten that. That there's a time and a place when we need to be rebuked every once in a while. But secondly, can we realize the great care with which Paul loves the believers in Galatia to say something like this? Oh, foolish ones. Oh, foolish Galatians. If he didn't love them, he wouldn't engage in this way. And instead now, his grave concern is for them, for their spiritual walk. And they've been driving for too long and they've fallen asleep at the wheel and they've started to just kind of doze off and hit the rumble strips. And Paul now is the rumble strip that says, whoa, wake up, bro, get back on the road. And so he jerks the wheel to where now everybody in the car, you ever been on a road trip and this happened? Not that your dad would ever do this, or if you are a dad that you would ever do this, or if you're a mom, you would ever do this. When your kids are falling asleep and you're like, that's not fair, there we go. Everybody's awake now? Oh, sorry about that. There's a deer over there. If you didn't hear that, there you see that, there you go. I would never do that. Never happens. His grave concern for them, he is now the rumble strip that says, get back on the road. You are falling away, oh foolish ones. And so we look at this and we get back to this spell. What was it that was so dangerous and deserving of a rebuke? This spooky spell, and if you think about a spell, I think about cartoons. I think about like the fictitious world, the cartoons like Sleeping Beauty. She didn't know she was under a spell for a long time. That's one way to think of it. I also think of it as Ka. Remember Ka in the Jungle Book? He's the snake or she, I don't know, it, it's the snake. And, and, and what does it do to Mowgli? But, but he's got the hypnotizing eyes and, and he's looking at Mowgli and he's going, trust in me. You know this, right? And if you're not a Jungle Book fan, then maybe you're a Stranger Things fan. And this last season, season three, right? It, it's, it's this darkness that invades one person. If, spoiler alert. Uh, Darkness that invades one person and it spreads from person to person all throughout Hawkins, Indiana. And it's not just Hawkins. It's also the churches in Galatia. It's also this church. It's also Richmond. It's also the Grove. What is the virus? What is the infection? What is the spell? Simply put, it is forgetting the finished work of Jesus. That's the spell. That's the spooky spell that we all need to be aware of. Not in a candy jar, not at the haunted house, not down the street. It is in our hearts that we would forget the finished work of Jesus. Paul is using a play on words here with this word bewitch and before your eyes, right? Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed 
as crucified. He is using this play on words. It's hard for us to see because this word bewitched has two definitions, both of which I'm going to explain. One is to exert an evil influence through the eye. It's through your eye that you're being led astray. If you dig a little deeper, the second definition is to be resentful of something that is being enjoyed by another. It's causing envy in you through your eye. How do you get envious about other people? You get on Facebook and you look. You get on Instagram and you watch. You get to your neighbors and you go, man, that's a sweet ride. That's what you do. We get envious through our eyes. This is the spell that we get envious of what other people are enjoying. What is it that the Christians in Galatia are starting to enjoy? The easiness, the simplicity of circumcision. You mean to tell me that I'm on JV right now? And all I got to do to get my letterman's jacket, my varsity jacket, is to get circumcised. That's it. I don't have to pray more. I don't have to give more. I don't have to volunteer more in the nursery. I don't have to put up pipe and drape. All I got to do is just one time circumcision and we're done. That seems to be pretty easy. Like, I might consider that. That's what's going on in the backdrop of Galatians. It's uncomfortable for us. I get it. We're all in this. Come on. But that's what's going on there. And if you think that circumcision is something of our past, instead, you mean to tell me I'm on JV? If I don't get baptized? You mean to tell me I'm on JV if I don't have a second baptism of the Spirit? You mean to tell me I'm on JV if I don't speak in tongues? You mean to tell me I'm on JV if I don't get to preach? You mean to tell me I'm on JV if anything? Just compare what you're good at, your favorite thing, and compare that to another person. And that's what's going on in the backdrop of Galatia. It's almost as if they've been staring at this masterpiece this beautiful painting, and they've enjoyed its fullness, its finished work, and yet someone comes up next to you and goes, hey, you know that's not the whole picture, right? There's a whole border to this thing that if you would just paint around it, then you'll actually find the finished picture. I draw this conclusion and this uh, example in modern day. You know that one of the most famous pictures in the world, drawing over six million visitors is in the Louvre in France. Do you know what it is? The Mona Lisa. Here's a picture of the Mona Lisa. Look at this thing. Look how tiny that thing is. Okay, I've never seen it. I don't know. Yeah, somebody's like, oh, I've seen it. Yeah, I see you. We see you. We got you. Two foot nine by one foot nine is what it measures, right? It's like, it's, it's, it's tiny. Like people's heads are bigger than the picture up here, right? Um, look at the crowd that gathers around it probably on a weekend. Look at this. Next one. Look at that. This little tiny thing, like you could probably print out on your home printer, is drawing all these crowds, and they're all looking in this direction. Do you know what's on the opposite wall of the Mona Lisa? Because I had to look it up. This is what's on the opposite wall of the Mona Lisa. It's the wedding at Cana. The most neglected painting in probably the Louvre is the wedding at Canaan. Do you know how big it is? Look at this picture. Look how big it is. 22 foot, three inches wide, or tall, 32 feet wide. And no, I didn't realize that lady was staring at me <laughs> because it wasn't on a big screen whenever I downloaded it. But I see her now. Thank you. 
Look at how big this thing is. You're not going to the Louvre to see that. I want you to just draw this parallel with me, if you will. Six million visitors go and stare at a picture of a woman, no spiritual significance that we know of, that was drawn or painted by a man, Da Vinci. We go and look and see what man has accomplished. And yet on behind us is this unbelievably huge picture of a symbol of the Son of God coming to the wedding at Cana, which if we backed up and went back to our Gospel of John series, and you just listen to John 2, you could go do that on our website, not right now, maybe later. You go listen to this, and what you would see is that at that first miracle, Jesus is providing enough wine for weeks to be drunk to a crowd that is already drunk, literally, and he continues to provide wine for them. Why does he do that? Not to uh, promote licentiousness or drunkenness, but instead he says, hey, go and fill up six uh, Jewish purification jars with water. Fill them up all the way to the brim. And when you do that, it is, most people think it's this beautiful picture that the Old Testament purification laws are full their time is up. And he changes them into this picture of provision with the kingdom, with wine. And he says, no longer are the Jewish purification laws on you. I'm going to fulfill that. And now there is abundance and provision of the kingdom, of mercy, and of grace. That's what's behind us when we're staring at what man can do. And Paul is saying, turn around. Look at the beautiful picture of Jesus's provision for you. We start thinking about the things that we're good at, the, the parts that we can accomplish in this life and in this faith. Jesus is drawing us back. Paul is drawing us back to stare and gaze at that which God has accomplished on our behalf. So now Paul turns and asks five questions in this text to drive it home for us. He says, hey, look, oh foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's told you there's a different picture to look at? Instead, you just keep staring at the finished work of Christ. And then he asks them five questions to hammer this home. And I think I could summarize it with this one question. This one question, I think, encapsulates a lot of different things. But for here, these five questions can be summarized into one. Why does God do anything? Why does God do anything? Why does he intervene? Why does he not intervene? Uh, on the way uh, to school on Thursday, my oldest, she's 11. Uh, on the way to school, she's driving ne next to me and she goes, hey, um, so I know that uh, I, like, Jesus loves everyone. And if that's true, I'm already in a trap. If that's true, why does he also then harden Pharaoh's heart? That's a great question, Reese. Um, you're headed to Fellowship of Christian Students. There's going to be a pastor there. You go ask that pastor. <laughs> Literally what I told her. Uh, and so I said, you need to go ask Pastor Randy that question when you get to FCS this morning. He has the answer for you. And um, that wasn't good enough for her, and nor did she go ask Pastor Randy, because I followed up with Pastor Randy later in that day, and I said, hey, my daughter say anything to you today? And he's like, nope. I was like, all right, well, we'll follow up conversation with Reese. Um, but her best guess was, she got, I said, why do you think he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and at the same time loves all people? She goes, 
Was it because God knew that Pharaoh was always going to reject him? Well, that's a great guess, Reese. It's actually one of the things that a lot of people have landed on. That's not where I land, Reese. But that's where a lot of people have landed, is that God foreknew that he would be rejected, and therefore he rejected Pharaoh. That feels, just so we're clear, feels like a work to me. I know it's a work to me. And so I think we go into this scripture and go, maybe Paul has some better answers for us through the reason of questioning. So let's read those questions, verses 2 through 5. Why does God do anything? Verses 2 through 5. Let me ask you only this. And in true Pauline fashion, he asks you only this by asking you five questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Why does God do anything? I think that's burning in all of our hearts. I know it was this morning for me. Lord, I don't feel connected to you with this sermon. I'm not like bursting in tears as I read through this, as I talk through this. I preach it to my steering wheel most Sunday mornings and I just kind of, okay, Lord, like what are you doing in this? Because I don't feel you close. Did I miss you? Did I miss some prayer that I was supposed to pray along the way? Was I supposed to fast on Friday and I missed that message? Was I, you know what it was? I was at softball for too long yesterday and now you're punishing me by not, not filling me up. I don't have the emotional, like, whoo, I'm really feeling good about this. Did I miss you? Isn't that in all of us? Why does God do anything? Is he going to be faithful during sermon time or during whatever you got to see this? Why does he do it? Why does he do anything? And that's the heart, at, really, at, for all of us. And so Paul breaks it down for us, really, in three Verses 2, 3, and 5, but verse 2, like, did you receive the Spirit? Did, it, this, did your spiritual journey, did it start by a work of the Spirit? It says, do you receive a Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did this thing start for you? Your justification that God declared you righteous, did it start with you doing the right things? Or did it start with the Spirit? Then you heard and you received and you believed in faith. You didn't see it, you believed it. It was so real to you. You're like, oh my gosh, this has got to be, this is it. This is the truth. This is the way. This is actually the life. Do you, do, do you and I really think that somehow we got God's attention or that we earned the justification that God has given us? That he literally sees us just as if I'd never sinned. When we start singing about gone, gone. It's finished. It's done. Is that because we were born in America? Is that because we were born in a Christian family? Did somebody else do something right? Did we get, what, 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 what was it? See, it didn't start that way. But what is your justification based on? Is it by works or by grace? I think what he's trying to tell us is that if it started by grace, how much more than the rest of it? How much more than the rest of it? But let's just think. Why does God do anything? Because we have earned it? Because we've been good enough? Because we've obeyed enough? Because we've done good enough works? Because we've done the right thing? Because you ate at Chick-fil-A? And not Whataburger? I, that feels like a battle of two goods. I don't know. 
Because we ate at Chick-fil-A because we have, or we are trying to be a really good wife. Because we're trying to be a really good husband or a really good mom or a really good dad. Is it because, it, oh, I know, it was because we got baptized. Why does God do anything for us? I love this one. Um, why would you be accepted before God in heaven? Well, I haven't murdered anyone. Well, they're setting the bar high. That's fantastic. Are you a good and moral person? Did, did, you, did you just store up enough karma that God finally saw you and was like, ah, there it is. Through the karma cloud, I now see my son. No. But we believe this. It's silly in those terms, but we believe this, do we not? And if we rely on this system, we are relying on a system of merit, of payment, that we go to God and we say, look at all these good things you owe me. Romans 4.4 4 says this, that now to the one who works, to the one who relies on works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what he's earned, as his due. If you rely on works and you go to God and he gives you something good, you are in a payment system. Only one big problem with that. You cannot go to God. I cannot go to God with some merit before him that I've done X, Y, or Z. Because Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. I'm, re I'm like leading you through the Romans road right here. You ever want to know how to share the gospel? This is it. You're in a system of payment. You don't want to be in that system. That's a bad news system. Here's why. Because you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, well, and, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a free gift. But the wages, if you want to talk about a payment system, the wages that you have earned is what, according to Paul? It's death. Death. We have earned death by our sin. If we want to set up a system of payment, that's bad news for us sinners. It's good news, though, at the end of that comma. But the free gift can't be earned. Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You say to me, I'm not that bad. I haven't done anything that bad. I have eaten at Chick-fil-A. I have done X, Y, or Z. Let us remember the words of the prophet Isaiah. And this is going to get gross, but this is biblical. We have all become, this is Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds... All of our righteous deeds, Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. All of us, me too. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Literal Hebrew is a menstrual garment. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted menstrual garment before a righteous and holy God. We do not want a payment system. That's bad news. Don't stand before God. Don't stand here today and still relying on your goodness to be accepted by God. It didn't start that way, Paul is saying. And if it didn't start that way, are you now going to continue in that bad system? That's a bad system to begin with. 
See, it's easy for us as Christians to go, the bad system, it didn't work for us. Like salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Praise God. But now what happens when we walk for a little bit? Like the Astros, right? They won the last two games. You know why, right? Hmm? Did you say money? Probably. You know what I thought? You know why they won the last two games? Because they fired their assistant general manager. He had bad juju on the team because he said the bad things and they are terrible. But he had bad juju on the team. So you got to fire that dude. You lost the two, first two games of the World Series. You fire that dude. Now you got good juju. That, that's in us. I thought that about the Astros. I wonder if they thought it. Nobody else? I'm the only one that thought this. Great. Perfect. Fantastic. Having begun, he goes on in verse 3, right? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So not only did this begin by you or did it begin by the Spirit, but now as you've come into a relationship with Christ, are you now trying to work this thing out by the flesh? Are you trying to be perfected, be completed, be finished? Same root word here for perfected is the same root word that Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. From beginning to end, Christian, let us not fall back in our old ways of relying on good things to get things from God. Oh God, why does God do anything? Because he wants to. He's our good dad. He's our father in heaven. Why would he not want to? He's a posture towards us. Our, his countenance is for us. He's not just with us. He's for us. Why would he not want to? It's not because we've done the right rain dance. It's not because I've been somehow righteous enough in order for X, Y, and Z to happen. It's because he's been righteous enough. Both when it started and as we continue. Why do we do, if we're going to ask the question, why does God do anything for us? We must also ask the question, why do we do anything for Jesus? Is it for payment? Did you, did you come in to give atonement for last night's sin? Did you come in and bring atonement to the offering box? Oh, Lord, help me. Forgive me. A lot of American church attendance is atonement, some payment for our sin. Do we, do we want to do things for God to kind of make our life work? Do we try Jesus and just, I hope he sorts out my marriage. We're going to try him out, though. We've tried everything else. We're going to try Jesus, too. Do we, we, we approach Jesus to get things? Do we, do we approach Jesus to get our kids to come back to the church after they've wandered for 10 or 15 or 20 years? Do we, do we go to Jesus to bring me a husband, to bring me a wife? Do we go to Jesus somehow doing the right dance at the right day with the right countenance to heal us of disease or of sickness or of pain, to provide a miracle? Paul has got us beat in our thinking. Verse five, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he do this for you because you've done some good or because he wants to? By hearing of faith. Is earning, friends, at your core? Maybe we don't approach God for miracles. Maybe we approach God to become more like Jesus. And so I would ask, do you pray? Do you fast? Do you practice spiritual disciplines to gain acceptance or to gain blessing or to gain reward from God? Or is the greatest reward that you could ever find simply being with your creator? 
regardless of what he gives you or doesn't give you, is earning at your core. Paul would say we are foolish, if so. Hoodwinked, dim-witted to approach God on terms of payment and not on grace and mercy. If salvation is by grace alone, friends, if salvation is by grace alone, then all of salvation is by grace alone. And yet there is responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is he working in us. We know this, but we lose heart. I lose heart. I lose perspective. I don't know if you do, but I certainly do. We see our circumstances. We wonder if God is answering our prayers. If he really will do anything, if we ask it in his name, if we, will he really do that if we ask it in his name? In John 15 and 17, will he really give us the desires of our heart? So we approach the throne room, not by grace, but by merit, and we behave for a season. And if he gives us what we want, we go, oh, praise God, he's so faithful. And if he doesn't give you what we want, we go, what did I do wrong? Does he love me anymore? Is he paying attention to me? We don't say, praise God, he's so faithful. What did I do wrong? What went wrong? What did I miss? What happened? I put my money in the vending machines and I asked for Skittles and it gave me the veggie sticks. And I'm mad about it. And I'm shaking, I'm, now I'm shaking the box, right? I gotta go to my supervisor. I don't know if you know this, but that thing is stealing my money. And with God, he's the supervisor. And he says, yeah, I know, I want you to have veggie sticks. You're like, I don't want veggie sticks. This is what we do. It's a simple analogy, but it's a, it's a poignant one, one that I try to repeat often. What happens when he delays, when we put our money in the vending machine and we don't get what we want? It's, isn't this where our true faith is on display? Isn't this when we must be reminded of the New Testament's great definition of faith from the book of Hebrews 11.1? 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God is doing something greater than what we ordered. God is doing something greater than what we can see. I don't see it right now, Lord. There is no reward here. It's the work of a farmer. We're gonna get to this in Galatians 6, but it's many months away. It's the work of a farmer. We put the seed in the ground and it disappears. And you don't know if it's gonna work or not, but you gotta depend and pray on the God of all provision. And at some point, something just pops out of the ground. You're like, holy moly, I could have just lost heart and just dug the whole thing up and put something else here. But something's happening. It's the work of a farmer. Will we lose our resolve because we can't see immediate results? Well, it's the hardest thing to continue to have assurance and conviction for that which is not seen. And that is, the thing that's not seen is the character of God, the promises of God to be faithful, to be present. Not to give you what you want. So if we're still having a hard time believing Paul, he kind of goes for the jugular next. And this is just going to be a preview for next week, but it's in verse 6. It's the example of Abraham. I'll actually read verse 5 and then go in through 9. This example of Abraham, why is he bringing Abraham up? We'll answer that right after we read it, right? Verse five, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? For just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, verse seven, now then that it is, know then, hello, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You're a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham, because of faith. 
Verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What is he up to? Well, you've got this church, and it started, and it's going well. And then you've got this other group of people called the circumcision group. And they've now said, basically, hey, if you really want to be a Christian, you got to become Jewish. The way that you become Jewish for us is if you get circumcised. If you know this, that all started with Abraham. Paul goes for the jugular for those Jewish believers. And he says, okay, if you want to go start with this whole Jewish thing, let's start with the father of Jews, Abraham. He was not a Jewish person. Most likely uh, a moon worshiper in Iraq or Syria, Turkey, you know, the part that's in the news. He, he starts off in Ur, then goes to Haran, and that's like, you know, the part that's in the news, always been in the news, always been there. It's there that God reveals himself as the one true God. No longer should you worship these things, Abraham. If you believe me, I'll give you a, a whole nation of people. You have no kids right now. It won't be until you're almost 100 years old that this comes true. Will you believe? And Abraham goes, yeah, yeah, I believe. Then in 15, God comes and confirms that covenant. These are both quotes right here we just read. Confirms that covenant while Abraham is asleep. God does all the things necessary to confirm the covenant with Abraham while he's asleep. My favorite part. You have no work in this. You want to get back to circumcision? Why don't we go back to Abraham. He had no part in this. I revealed myself to him and he believed. And so you might say to yourself, well, isn't faith a work? If you just think about that for just a moment and then we're done. I know we've been thinking some, but we're gonna think one last time. Well, isn't faith a work? And I would just ask like, faith in what? Faith in who? He doesn't have faith in his own works. He is having a faith in the one who declared him righteous. Faith in the God who already revealed himself to Abraham, who already chose him to be the father of nations. He didn't come up with this idea on his own. It was revealed to him and he believed it. It was given to him and he received it. He didn't come up with it on his own. Instead, he took God at his word, the same call for us. So what is the spooky spell that lurks in our hearts that we would forget the finished work of Jesus? What's the remedy to this spell? Let's take God at his word, just like Abraham. Because we are sons and daughters of faith. We are grafted into the family. And so the God of Abraham and Paul wants you to know today, wants you to know today that through, though the journey may be hard, it may be more difficult than you ever imagined, and you may be tempted to either give up or worse, try harder, that just leads to exhaustion, that's just putting giving up down the road. We either want to give up or we try hard, harder. Friends, it is finished, perfected, completed in Christ. All of it. The first part, justification. All the parts of sanctification. The final part of glorification. Those are churchy words. You have to Google it or look it up or find a friend. Can't do all of it right now. That he's set you right, that he's setting you right, and that one day all things will be right. All of it is his. And so we trust when things go to heck. I don't want to say that word right now, but to heck. We trust. 
When my kids go off the deep end, we trust. When my job isn't turning out, we trust. When my health is fading and failing, we trust. We can't try harder. We can't do our little rain dance. We can't fire the assistant GM. We trust. Jesus lived a sinless life, died a terrible death, was resurrected from the grave. And I just want you to think about that for a moment. Perfect life, heinous death, rose from the grave. What could we possibly add to that work? What could we possibly add to the finished work of Jesus, not just on the cross, but also the power from the grave? You can't raise yourself. I can't raise myself. I wouldn't die for my enemy, and I sure can't live a perfect life. And yet Jesus did it all for us. Will we believe? Will we trust? That's the common question for us. Will we be captivated, hoodwinked, brought underneath a spell with Caw looking at us saying, trust in me, it's better if you just work a little. It's better if you can just add to this picture. You'll be on JV if you do X, Y, or Z. Or you'll be on varsity if you do X, Y, and Z. Or will we live in the light of the truth? That he who began a good work in us will, not might, not maybe if you do enough good things, he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. To that, I pray that our lives are huge. Praise God and amen to him. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we want to live accordingly. We want to live according to the good news. Not the bad news, not the, not the, not the payment system, but the good news of grace, of mercy, of the meal that's already provided for us. We don't have to cook it up. We don't have to know how to do X, Y, or Z. We don't have to know what, how much sugar or salt or flour to put in this recipe, you've, you've made it. You've finished it and now you serve it to us and I pray, Lord, that we would receive it. Your son Jesus came to die for us, rose from the dead to give us new life. And in these moments that are still, where our kids are still out doing their thing and the band is getting ready to lead us in one response song, Maybe it's in these moments right now, we just, we just need to ask, Lord, how have I, have I approached you with earning? Lord, we know that you're not opposed to effort. You say make every effort to add to your faith. But you are opposed to earning because you've earned it. When we earn... It's forgetting the finished work of Jesus. And so how have we approached you with a merit system of earning? Holy Spirit, would you reveal that to us? And then help us understand the gospel in such a way that we don't live like that anymore. Holy Spirit, do your thing in our hearts. Do your thing in this room. For those that forget, and, and we all do, would you remind us of the truth, the good news the one thing that makes Christianity different than all other religions is a God who came to rescue us from ourselves. Didn't say, you can do this. Just go to temple. Go to synagogue. Go to church. He said, none of that matters to me. Believe in my son. So we believe, not just for the one thing, but for all things. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.